Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver. Today, I wanted to take a look at a few cultural artifacts that have caught my eye and I think go some distance to revealing the cultural dynamics around the culture war and what's evolving in real time. And two of them are pretty significant movies. The first one is Avatar, The Way of the Water. It's the second movie in a five movie uh, series that James Cameron is doing. The first one is the biggest box office moneymaker of all time. And currently this second one is the seventh biggest moneymaker of all time. So they're very, very successful. So that's one thing I'm going to take a look at. The second is another movie called Bros, which was a big budget gay rom-com. Okay. It was released uh, probably around Thanksgiving. It was a Christmas rom-com produced by Judd Apatow, big Hollywood production. And then the third is a, a, a something quite a bit smaller. It's a child's storybook. It's called Our Skin, A First Conversation About Race. And it's a picture book for preschools. I'll, um, I'll share some pictures from it. So just a quick review of uh, a piece of cultural evolution theory that I think is important. And that is that every new stage of cultural development, as it arises out of the previous culture, is seen as a corruption of the previous culture. So if you think of the warrior stage of development, the warriors disdained the settlers. The settlers became, of course, the traditionalists, and they in turn disdained science and burned the heretics and arrested Galileo and all of that. So that's sort of what's happening today is that the postmodern stage of development is fluorescing. It's coming online mainstream these days. And modern consciousness is seeing it as a as a degradation. It's like Elon Musk, and I talked about last week, called woke uh, mind virus. And that's typical of that sort of classic liberal criticism of woke. So Integral takes uh, another view of that, that woke ideology, progressive ideology is ultimately a forward move in creating a better society, a society that's more equitable, sustainable, more room for personal exploration and expression around sex, identity. These are all good things. So that's the upside. The downside is that the it's brought forth on the backs of fanatics. And again, that's like all stages. Every stage has its fanatics, and apparently they're uh, required. So that's what we're dealing with. So is woke good or bad, this sort of progressive postmodern vision, good or bad? The integral answer is both. And so we want to tease those things apart, which leads me to our first work of art that we're going to look at, the children's picture book called Our Skin, A First Conversation About Race. And I'll share my screen. So there it is. And so this was brought to my attention 
by a longtime listener from Nederland, Colorado. Now, Nederland is a, a little mountain community about 30 miles up the canyon from Boulder, here where I live. This is a book that is being read to his children in preschool. So this is the author, Megan Madison, and she reads it on YouTube. And I just took some stills and we can go through it. It starts out with, we all have skin. It comes in different colors. And so you can see these this array of kids and there's an elephant there and it's cute. And the text goes on, what color is your skin? And then the next is, our skin is beautiful, strong, and important, just the way it is. And it shows a little brown boy in a swimming pool. And then we have a page, what do you love about your skin? And there's these hands of different colors and then these little wiggling toes of different colors and it's very cute. And the next page, the darker your skin, the more melanin you have. The lighter your skin, the less melanin you have. Melanin makes our skin many beautiful shades from dark to light. What do you call your unique skin color? And again, the kids are playing. Uh, next, the kids are still playing. Skin color can't tell you much about what people are like, what they know, what foods they think are yummy, what their favorite books are, or even where they were born. And then we go on. Just by looking at someone, we can't tell who they are on the inside. But sometimes people try to anyway. Here we move into <laughs> the next page which shows a scientist, a white scientist, and it shows a bunch of skulls. So this is a eugenicist, and the skulls are in little uh, displays that read Malayan, Mongolian, Caucasian, and American. Uh, there's a trophy with a skull that says Caucasian, most beautiful skull. And the text reads, a long time ago, way before you were born, a group of white people made up an idea called race. They sorted people by skin color and said that white people were better, smarter, prettier, and that they deserve more than anybody else. Next page, when people believe this untrue story about race, that's called racism. Racism is also things people do in the unfair rules they make about race so that white people get more power and are treated better than anybody else. Racism happens in lots of big and small ways. It's all around us, even if we don't always notice it. And then a couple more pages about fighting this injustice by saying, that's not right. Marching in protest, changing the rules, teaching, helping, learning, and listening. So the typical mistake that Green makes, it will tell a world-centric truth. The truth being that all skin colors are perfect just the way they are, but that that truth is expressed ethnocentrically. And it goes on to say, at least it would be if it weren't for those people with white skin. Everybody would be perfect just the way they are, except for the people with white skin who made up this idea of race. And this is a common thing that we are seeing and will continue to see, I mean, worldwide, actually, uh, that is this conflation of race with worldview, with development, and 
um, and ignores the simple fact that for all of human history, humans have been racist or, you know, in most of human history where they didn't see another race, they were tribalists. You know, it's human history is a story of one group demonizing and dominating the next. It's just an endless story of that, really, until modernity, actually. So, you know, if we look at the big dynamics of development, over time, the new stage of development dominates the previous one. It's not always cut and dried, and sometimes these battles, you know, warrior versus settlers, go on for millennia. But eventually, the more developed stage wins, and thus it is with modernity. It's not so much, you know, evolution doesn't really care what color skin the people have when a new stage arises. In fact, if you think of the first stage of development, that is, you know, what we would call archaic or the human self-consciousness itself, that arose in Africa, as did the second, tribal, which then spread out of Africa. And we have the next stage, the stage of agriculture, the Neolithic age, that arose in the Middle East and also in South America. And now I'm just reading that we think that it came in South America about a thousand years before it did in the Fertile Crescent. So, you know, traditional cultures then uh, arose in multiple areas uh, with the rise of the axial religions in China and India and Christianity. And then we had modernity arise. And for various reasons that people debate all the time, modernity arose in Western Europe. Among people with white skin, yes, and particularly in the uh, United Kingdom, in the British Isles. And I've heard lots of reasons, again, that you know, Christianity had a sense of individualism that other religions didn't. The last documentary I, I saw talked about how, you know, it was inevitable that the Industrial Revolution was going to start in England, because when you walk around, there's coal laying on top of the ground. It's not that hard to get coal. Uh, but whatever, I'm not going to argue that. I think there's lots of explanations. But it did happen that way. And now modernity, of course, is all over the world. It's not limited to Western Europe or white people or there are modern people everywhere. And there are pre postmodern people everywhere as well. But in terms of history, early modern people when modernity was first coming on in Western Europe, we had, you know, that sour spot in history where we have people with modern technology. So they had metallurgy and they had logistics and they had enough science to make weapons, but they had pre-modern minds, pre-modern consciousness. So pre-modern consciousness is dominate and exploit your neighbors. So in colonial Europe. They did what human beings have always done. They took what they could get from their weaker neighbors. And, you know, we have the colonial age. And yes, their science did categorize people and rank them, and eugenics and all that. And um, But of course, so did countless caste systems throughout history. So, you know, that's what people do. And the Good thing is the thing that we would want to notice, and of course this book doesn't, and this story 
doesn't. The, you know, the, everything was good until the white people came along. Ignores the fact that modernity in about the space of 70 or 80 years outlawed slavery. Once modernity happened in the interiors. So slavery is outlawed, passed civil rights legislation. Um, and in terms of eugenics, actually, science also delivered the realization that all people of all colors are the same species. We actually didn't know that in the 1700s. That was the late 1800s before science said, wait a second, all the, we're, it's one species, different colors, different, so that also is a, a result of science and modernity. So you, know, you can see that the, the culture war then is shaping up around the, the fight between modernity's vision of a better world and the postmodern vision of a better world. And they're both important and they will both fight it out. And actually traditionalists are in on it too. And we'll get to that in a second. But between modernity and post-modernity, it's basically a, a war between equality in the exteriors. That is the Civil Rights Act, equality of opportunity, level playing field, colorblind, meritocracy, and everything settled. We're now at the end of history. <laughs> <laughs> except that green postmodern, and of course, green's job is to critique the previous stage. Every stage critiques the previous stage. That's their job. And so green postmodern woke comes along and says, are you kidding me? You want a level playing field now after having your boot on our neck for 200 years or, you know, hundreds more? No, we need to rebalance this thing. We need affirmative action, not just passive action. We need cash reparations. We need equality of outcomes to be, you know, far more important in the scheme of things. And we can see that. We can see that, you know, getting rid of the laws against racist behavior doesn't change the racist behavior in our hearts, can white people be racist? Of course, they're human beings. Can you see that there is, or might be something in the culture where people who are not in the mainstream aren't seen, they're marginalized, they're invisible, also sexual minorities? So, you know, th that is, that's true. It's, it's still there. And that's, you know, this fight between these two stages of development. And again, I would add traditionalism to that in the sense that there is a movement afoot among white people to really reject this kind of thinking uh, from this storybook. And it's an ethnocentric fight back against this ethnocentric expression of this, of this book. So, you know, welcome to the culture wars. And, you know, my prediction is that we will continue to make progress, only faster, actually. Uh, I think about the world of my grandparents and great-grandparents, who I knew. And, you know, we're, we live in a world now that is not, not only more wealthy, but way more equitable, way less racist, way less violent, way more gender fluid in the sense that if you think of the sex roles of our grandparents versus today and our kids, you know, and that will continue. Uh, people want 
to have the full masculine and feminine expression. People want, I mean, at some point, race, skin color will be about as important as eye color or hair color. You know, it might be interesting, but it's not dispositive in any way. And I think our grandchildren are definitely heading there. Now, does that mean we'll live in a happier world? I think so, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's not always that cut and dried. You know, is a 13-year-old happier than a 10-year-old? Probably not. But they're smarter. And eventually, uh, you know, if you continue to be on the developmental path of the human being, you become wiser. So that's, you know, how, how I think it ends up. But, you know, again, in the meantime, welcome to the culture war. So, uh, so now let me turn to the next uh, work that I was going to talk about, and that's the movie Avatar, The Way of the Water. And this really takes the story of this storybook and expands it into a great global, world-centric, green, progressive myth. So again, a world-centric, maybe even a bit cosmocentric, it's science fiction, way it includes other worlds, uh, but they're very much told from an ethnocentric point of view, where we have the, the pristine myth. You know, this is the myth of the noble savage, the Navi people who live on this uh, planet Pandora. And they live in peace and harmony. And then the sky people come. And the sky people are white. <laughs> now, they become avatars of the Navi people, and there's a whole sort of science fiction thing going on there. But um, they're the bad guys, and the tribes, the blue people, are the good guys, and that begins this great battle between good and evil. Um, just from a movie-making perspective, my sort of overall critique of the movie is that it's long, you know, it's three hours and 15 minutes, and it's actually pretty bland in, in terms of the storytelling. The characters weren't that well-developed. I mean, I, I actually, I'm, I'm wondering whether that's just the best they could do, you know, because you could tell the story of the conflict between, I mean, the conflict between stages of development is really the engine of literature and art throughout history. Uh, and you could do a better job, it seems to me. Uh, or is this really coming from, you know, this is James Cameron. He did Titanic. I think he did three or four of the biggest movies ever, box office ever made. Uh, he made it for an international audience. And so I think there might be a certain intentional blandness to it. So it can fit into different cultures, which is what it's doing, you know, in spades. So, you know, it's right on schedule in a way. It's it's a postmodern center of gravity movie. That means by definition, its job is to critique modernity and to rectify the disasters of modernity. Now, in this case, the main theme is another one of the downsides of modernity, and that is the environmental, uh, environmental devastation you know, modernity built the modern world. We like that part, but it killed half the natural world. So the, basically that's been the trade-off of modernity and it's horrifying. 
uh, particularly to the postmodern world-centric sensibility. Uh, the second thing is modernities, and we talked about this, the exploitation of pre-modern peoples. So that's the, the, that's the gist of this great myth. So again, we have the navvy people living in pristine harmony with nature. And of course, that too is problematic. There's been a blowback from the left to Cameron and his movie, where they call it Blueface. And that, you know, the main character is, uh, which is the, the head of the Navi family, is actually an avatar of a white guy from the previous movie. And so he's the white savior. And, you know, you can't win, but you're not supposed to win. The culture wars are supposed to be fruitful, and they are. So anyway, so these sky people have been beaten back from the first movie, but of course, they have ruined their world. And so they're coming back to inhabit Pandora. Once they're all blue, once they become avatars, it's hard, except for their accents, to see that they're representing white people. But when you see them as soldiers and all of that before then, they're all white. And in fact, one of the early scenes shows the male character, the head of the Navi family, and he's, you know, relaxed in his warrior pose. And they're a little bit sexist. The wife's cooking dinner. You know, they're still, she's got the kids. And the kids are playing, but he feels this unease because he hears his kids teasing each other and using words like, I hate you, and you're a penis head, and things like that. Words that sound ominously like English. So, again, it's very clear where the bad stuff's coming from. Uh, there was one exception that I noticed, and that is that when they're hunting the whales, and the, 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 one of the purposes of the sky people coming back to Pandora is that they get this emerita, this rare golden fluid that is drained from this particular organ of the tulkun, which is this large whale-like species that lives in Pandora that's highly intelligent, in fact, more intelligent than the people. The whale and the, this Amorita contains all of the uh, riches of philosophy and mathematics, and they feel emotion stronger than any human being could ever feel. And all of that is contained in this chemical that they you know, these sky people covet and they're after it because it's $80 million an ounce and it stops human aging. And it's, you know, it's a little bit of a mess, I have to say, but it leads to this big scene of whale hunting, which is brutal, I have to say. And, you know, the only thing that kept me in the game was realizing it's no more brutal than actual whale hunting. So, you know, they got me there. Uh, but there was one uh, vaguely Asian character during the whale hunt, and I think they sort of do that in um, acknowledgement of the Japanese and the, the, their big whale hunters. So at any rate, it's, it's like that. Uh, no uh, what we would call people of color being bad, bad guys. Okay, so at any rate, there's a, a big battle between the sky people and the tribal Navi people, and they 
pray to the great mother God. So there's a lot of that sort of magic, um, nature spirits, big time nature spirits. So it's really developmentally very located. They very much have the Navi people located in this, you know, great Edenic paradise where they don't hate each other and they don't have any wars with each other. But they used to actually. And then they all got together. I remember this now, just in real time. They used to fight with each other. But then they all got together and decided that that wasn't very good. So they stopped it. They made fighting uh, illegal. So there is a big revolt of the animals and nature and the, uh, you know, I won't get into the um, climax, but, you know, it's well set up for the next sequel. Again, if you don't go to the movies, um, or you're not up for sitting through a three hour and 15 minute movie, you don't necessarily see this, but this is going out all over the world. And I actually have to say um, that it's probably fine. It's probably good. Aside from the fact that white people are the bad guys, um, it's instilling values that are very good. You know, I mean, in some ways it's a little heavy on modernities being the bad guy, but um, you know, that, Young people around the world can be warned about the dangers of, first of all, you know, just rapacious capitalism and bulldozers and, you know, the, the exploitation of nature. That's good. They will have a more intelligent move into modernity than we did. And, and also the idea of race, that there is, there's a myth. I mean, every culture needs a myth that, the, you know, back then we were warriors until XYZ happened, and we fell from paradise, and now we have to find our way back. This is so built into the human psyche that this movie just, you know, it's, it's like a key in a lock. And I can't argue with it. I'm just saying that as we move into more of an integral sensibility, I hope we can sort this, uh, this part out uh, for both the edification of people of all colors, including white people. All right, so then I wanted to move into the last movie that I wanted to take a look at. And this is the movie Bros. And again, rom-com, gay rom-com, uh, Christmas movie with Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. So there you go, two white guys who are gay, living in New York City, contemporary movie. And uh, I was sort of, I, I'm not sure I wanted to watch it. I was nervous about watching it because I thought it would be insufferable. I'm a gay guy myself. And I thought it would be trying to fit gay people into, you know, a straitjacket, part the expression. But it wasn't actually. It was it was really fresh. And it was really uh, fun. And I found myself completely won over by it. The, the Billy Eichner character was the head of a GLBTQ, et cetera, museum that was being built in New York City. So they had the board of directors of all of these people who were gender fluid, binary. So they had these big arguments about who was being represented. And it was fun. It was making, it was sending up the sort of identity politics of green in a really fun way. Dream bisexuals. You know what? This happens to be Bisexual Awareness Week and no one has acknowledged it. I acknowledge that is true, my bad. Lesbian History Month was in March. Nobody said a goddamn thing. It's June. 
It was in March! Of course lesbians get a month and we get a week. Robert. What? I want you to know that I hear you. So I, I liked it. It was one over. And I want to say until this happened. But the truth is, I was one over anyway. But this did happen. <laughs> the Luke McFarlane character's parents come to town for Christmas. And they are, um, you know, touring the city. And they're from Indiana. And they're just, you know, regular white folks. And not very sophisticated. The mother is a second grade teacher. Um, so they're having dinner together. And Billy's been quite expressive. He's, you know, out there and he's being himself. I don't know if you know Billy Eichner, but he does this show called on YouTube called Billy on the Street, where he does these outrageous interviews, man in the street interviews that are hysterical. I've always been a fan of his. And check out Billy on the Street. It's really, really super fun. So he's that character. He's just big and brash and uh, interrupting and uh, just, uh, you know, gay, gay, gay. So anyway, they're having dinner. And so we get into this thing, and this is, of course, a big part of the progressive move is to bring, um, you know, non-binary education, just like the racist education in the, uh, or anti-racist education in the storybook, uh, you know, the, the, the story of gay people and, uh, you know, how everybody's okay and everybody gets to be who they are. Of course, the problem for a lot of people in modernity and traditionalism is for, for modernity, it's like, okay, uh, but let's watch it with the medicalization, with surgery and hormones for kids, uh, and then we can work it out. I, I have this grand compromise that I've uh, often thought ought to work, and that is, no medical interventions or automatic weapons till you're 26. So it kind of gets both sides because, you know, 26, we do have a new sort of maturity that comes online. Anyway, so they're having an argument about this. He's saying it should be taught in second grade. She's like, well, it's a bit too young, I think. And of course, Luke, the son of the mother is like, please shut up, Billy, calm down, be quiet, let's just have a nice dinner. So that's the setup for this scene. And I will play it for you now. Bobby, can you please drop it? No, I can't because we're talking about gay kids here. And it's important. One of the things that saved me is that my parents exposed me to gay stories when I was a kid. When I was 12 years old, this is true, my parents took me to see a Broadway play called Love and Compassion. It was about a group of gay men spending the summer together in Provincetown. And all of a sudden, the curtain goes up and there are seven completely naked gay men on stage. And there I am, sitting between my mom and dad at age 12, looking at seven soft penises. And all of a sudden, two of the guys start making out, and then one of them starts, like, talking dirty, you know? And I remember this so vividly. There was a sex scene, and one of the guys is like, pill my prostate, pill my prostate, you know, milk me, milk me. And I didn't even know what that was. I mean, now I do. But, you know, it was incredible, you know, to know that I could sit there between my mom and dad looking at seven penises. Seven penises, Anne. I was 12. All I'm saying is we need to remove the stigma from that type of thing so that gay kids can feel good about themselves. That's all I'm saying. All right. Um, that's a lot. You know, I have to say, I have been a card-carrying, practicing, red-blooded, homosexual American man for over 40 years. And I never once have thought about or discussed prostate milking with any of my partners. I 
think I know what it is. Uh, and, you know, I have to say, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world for kids to have this kind of understanding. I think in the world to come, they will, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I remember it, when I was in second grade, I was taught that if I wasn't good, I would burn in the lake of fire for eternity. And, you know, I, I survived. I mean, every stage has its apocalyptic story. And this is this one. If we don't save these gay kids with stories of prostate milking, then we're somehow failing them. And, you know, in this fight between progressive remaking of the culture and modernity saying, let's just let it, nature take its course. And of course, traditionalism saying, no way with this stuff. Um, again, welcome to the culture wars. You know, this, uh, just uh, in terms of the movie, um, this was the fulcrum on which the great misunderstanding happens and the great alienation that happens between the two main characters. So they're mad at each other and they're, um, they're separated, but of course they long for each other and eventually they get back together and work it out. And the way they work it out is not that both of them say, well, you know, I could have calmed down a little bit or I could, uh, this is what I did wrong. This is what, you know, maybe you did wrong. And maybe we learn from this and we go forward. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that at all. It was like Luke had to get that it was absolutely the right thing for um, for Billy to say that, to offend his mother, to do that at dinner. And that was the resolution, was that that was okay. And it's a little bit like, you know, at an earlier stage of development, and we've probably all been there. You're at a dinner party and somebody has just been saved and just accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior, you know, and that's what they want to tell you. And if they don't, they're not doing their job. I mean, I remember one of my proselytizing friends in my younger years saying, I have to say this to you because it's like there's a bus bearing down in you. And if I don't pull you out of the way, you're going to be hit and you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. So, you know, welcome to the fanaticism of a new stage of consciousness when we get all excited about it and, um, you know, uh, become totalitarians <laughs> and voice it on everybody else. So I think that'll do it for me today, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have here that, um, you know, one of the great achievements of modernity is that we all get to believe what we want in the privacy of our heads and hearts. That's huge. You know, so we still want to, uh, you know, we, we're still secret totalitarians. We want everybody to think the way we do. But we do have a system that accommodates different interiors and different, you know, everybody in the privacy of their own heart gets to believe what they want to believe. That's a huge, hard-won development for humanity. And that, you know, we keep that, then, you know, we'll fight our way forward and friend our way forward and fuck our way forward. Ay, sorry. Okay, I think that'll do us for today. Thank you so much for checking in to The Daily Evolver. Check me out on Twitter. I'm doing more Twitter these days. And um, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thanks, folks. <laughs>